Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast Olympics relived. All of my dreams have come true. I only really bother about tennis for the other three and a bit, almost of a year, in order to get to focus on the Olympics. <laughs> and this is where all of my dreams get to come true. I've gone all David Law about this one, pestering everybody to do more and make more podcasts and get more excited about it because I'm a bit of an Olympics nut, really. And this is really taking the edge off the fact that I'm not getting to watch archery happening in Tokyo, which is what I should be doing at the moment. You're quite right. I mean, I, I didn't want to be doing this at all, frankly. Um, <laughs> and uh, everybody keeps saying, you know, oh, David's doing this again. And he's making everybody stay up in the middle of the night and do 28 interviews. And it's not me. It's Catherine. Yeah, I mean, that all is still happening. <laughs> it's just yeah, it is, uh, it is, yeah. it's just in the name of the greatest sporting event on the planet correct i want to know why you always lead with archery as the niche olympic sport because alphabetical I think, don't you think it sort of encapsulates the joy of the olympics a sport that abs apologies to archery players archers and archery fans the world over but obviously archers. nobody is watching archery for 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 the remainder of the four-year olympic cycle and then for for a week or whatever every four years it it becomes the the most important thing in everyone's lives like curling at the winter olympics mm. yeah you either do it on a holiday camp on holiday for a week or you watch it on the olympics and that's yeah. most people's knowledge of archery i also remember thinking when it was announced that uh london was getting the 2012 olympics which happened in july 2005 um at which point i would have been well hang on how old would i have been 19 uh and what it happened during wimbledon actually that announcement i was um that was one of my ball store assistant years uh, at Wimbledon and I remember thinking oh you're 19 and not a professional athlete currently <laughs> um, and it feels quite late to uh, take up a sport and become a professional athlete uh, in order to compete in seven years time at your home Olympics uh, and I remember sort of scanning in my mind through potential sports 
bought for what might be feasible and I settled upon you could probably become a professional archer in the space of seven years at a, at a you know high level but I would have had to sort of sacrifice everything else and at the time I was on course for a really illustrious ball store assistant career <laughs> um, and I wasn't prepared to make that sacrifice please tell me you gave it at least one go no I've never arched <laughs> So you, you didn't even uh, turn up. Not, at the... I've never even learned the verb for for to to arch to arch to to to, to help help me <laughs> to someone do help archery. me to do archery. Yeah, um, but I what, feel what, like you could still. Well, yeah, I, I mean, live I that dream. Thanks, Matt. I haven't ruled it out. <laughs> I feel like it, my my dad's always said his sort of backup plan for life was to become a darts player. Um, and likewise, I think archery would possibly be that for me. A shooting as well, sort of in the same ballpark. Um, but yeah, I think possibly my, my chances now of becoming a gold medalist swimmer are fa- fading. Mm. Certainly at a home games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we don't know when the next one is. Um, the, the, can I just say, though, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the the kind of overlap between archers, shooters, and whatever else darts players are to tennis, i.e. how many of those listen to the tennis podcast, but if there are any, we're about to get a lot of letters. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, we're about to find out exactly how many there are. Yes. And and if someone is available to teach me and help me to become an, uh, live my dream of becoming an Olympian one day. Um, so this is Olympics Relives. We're going to be covering uh events at all of the olympic tennis events since it returned um to the olympics in 1988 we're going to be covering two olympics per episode so today's episode will cover the olympics in seoul in 1988 and then the olympics in barcelona in 1992 and we have spoken to medalists of all colors from all of the Olympics. We've spoken to all sorts of folk, mostly over the uh, the past week, but we did a few Olympics-based interviews a little little while back. I think the first interview I did for Tennis Relived was with Monica Puig. That feels like a lifetime ago. Um, so we're going to be hearing from all sorts of people. In today's episode, we've got Zena Garrison, Tim Mayotte, um, they were both medalists in 88. Mark Rosse, the gold medalist from 92. Michael Stieck, who won a doubles men's gold alongside Boris Becker, with whom he didn't necessarily always have uh, the greatest of relationships. And that's sort of perfect illustration of one of the the unique and beautiful things about the Olympics. And Gigi Fernandez um, as well, who is a double gold medalist because she also won gold spoiler alert in Atlanta in 96 but we'll be covering that on our next episode today we'll be covering her first Olympic gold in Barcelona in 1992 so we're going to start in Seoul in 1988 and David would you like some Olympic based facts about what was happening or what happened in Seoul in 1988 my main motivation for being here <laughs> we've gone we've gone olympic themed for all of our facts because you know thanks to tennis relived everyone knows everything that was happening in the world uh, for the last 30 years so 
in Seoul in 1988, it was the first Olympics that allowed professionals to compete, which led to the return of tennis to the Olympic family. Table tennis and archery were also added as new sports. Kristin Otto became the most decorated woman ever in a single Olympics with six golds, the 100-metre freestyle backstroke butterfly, the 4 by 100 freestyle relay, the 4 by 100 medley relay and the 50-metre freestyle. Boxer Edward Paululum was justifiably proud, becoming the first athlete from Vanuatu to appear at the Olympic Games. But the morning of his bout... Instead of eating after the weigh-in, the bantamweight contender decided to have a hearty breakfast beforehand. Uh, Unfortunately, he was too heavy at the weigh-in to be considered for the contest. (laughs) And the officials had no choice but to disqualify him. Um, Why we haven't interviewed boxer Edouard Paululum, I don't know. Uh, but perhaps for a future podcast. Um, It was the Olympics where Ben Johnson set a new world record of 9.79 seconds in the 100 metres before then failing a drugs test. There's a lot of sort of drugs tests. Uh, Drugs tests are a bit of a theme. Um, And Greg Luganis Luganis won gold on both the springboard and platform for the second successive Olympics after cracking his head open on the springboard in qualifying. How I much remember of, that. Uh, I, remember I was going to say, how much of all that do you remember, David? Well, I remember Greg Lagana seeing that live at the time on TV, and it was shocking to, to because he was the favourite, and to watch him go and tumble and then just, you know, and they slow-moed it as well. Ooh. And he was going backwards. You know, he was on the backwards flip. Um and then you just saw his body Is kind of flop into turn, the... that a technical turn, David? <laughs> <laughs> he just saw his body flopped into the water. And yeah, I mean, you, time stopped. And the, th- the fact that he got up and he carried on, I mean, I, I guess now with concussion um, rules and concern and knowledge, I'm not sure he would have been allowed to carry on. But, you know, he, he was allowed to, to continue and he, and he ended up winning, as you say. The um, the Ben Johnson story, I remember I remember that breaking live here in the UK. And uh, BBC TV were covering it. Des Lynham was presenting it. And it's one of his most famous, most memorable moments because he is sitting face to camera in the studio and he just looks down the lens and he says... I've just been handed a piece of paper, and if what I'm reading on it is correct, then it is the biggest story of not just these Olympics, but any other. Ben Johnson is reported to have failed a drugs test. And this was literally the day after he had run 9.79. I'd watched that race. I was so massively hyped for that race. Linford Christie was in it from for Britain. Carl Lewis was the most famous Olympian at that time in that he'd won several golds in 1984. Um, so the the entire field was packed. And Johnson, I, I watched it a couple of days ago, just, just to remind myself. I mean, he just leaves them for dead. It's, 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 when you're watching it, you, you're, he used to be well known for his incredible start, but he doesn't just start the fastest. He starts pulling away from guys who used to come on strong at the end of the race. And, and at the time, you did think, I don't, I can't believe what I've just seen. And sure enough, you couldn't believe it because it was too good to be true. Uh, and when the news broke of the 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 drugs test, how did, as a as a sort of 
potentially, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but as a, a naive-ish teenager, <laughs> uh, very into sports. He, he, he's nodding, folks. He's he's going ish, with it. Ish is kind, I have to say. <laughs> um, how, how did you feel about that? Did you feel sort of personally let down? Did you feel sort of sullied or corrupted in some way? Do you, do you know what I mean? That sort of pure love for sport being tainted in in a way yeah. that's how that's how i felt previously when when news like that's broken a hundred percent because this is the first one of its type that we'd we'd ever had like this of of somebody being this big a name this fast this it was so exciting i mean even 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 though you slightly suspended your belief and kind of couldn't work out whether this is is real you'd i mean it never occurred to me that he was I mean I was I was only 14 or 15 years of age now if you read back on the clippings from the time Carl Lewis was saying that he he thought the guy was was taking drugs and and that he didn't believe what he was seeing um but that hadn't infiltrated my thinking as a kid uh I was just watching this superhuman piece of athleticism and yeah it was like watching a superhero so and I, and I was you know as somebody who liked wrestling and uh, and, and all that kind of make-believe I was right into it I loved every minute of it I was cheering Ben Johnson on I mean I'd like Linford Christie to have won it but aside from Ooh, that don't don't spoil a 1992 David <laughs> uh, what side of what side of the straight and narrow were you on in 88 oh David. um the, I was I was all right in '88. No, I was all right. I was I was just just a kid, and you know I was a pain in the neck, but nothing 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 too humiliating. Um, so that's what was going on generally at the Olympics in '88. Obviously, it was a huge year for tennis. It had been reinstated as an Olympic sport. Philippe Chatrier um, of of France and the president at the time of the ITF. He was very instrumental in getting tennis reinstated. It had been a dem- what they called a demonstration sport at the 1984 uh, Olympics in Los Angeles. So the tennis was sort of held there, but it wasn't counted as officially as an Olympic sport and professionals weren't allowed to enter. And in a, a New York Times preview of the Seoul Olympics in 88, it talks about that demonstration event uh, in LA in 84, and it said, a pair of promising teenagers, Graf and Edberg, won the women's and men's titles. Promising well, was, teenagers. Um, Graf was only about 14, wasn't she, at the time? Well, yeah, because in 88, she, of course, won, won gold, the first uh, official Olympic title, completing her golden slam, which is something that I've always known as as a tennis fan that Steffi Graf is the only person in tennis history to have completed the Golden Slam of all four slams and the Olympics in in the same year. I I don't think I fully processed until Tennis Relived that she was 18 years old when mm. she did that. 18. Yeah, same. And incredible that Graf and Edberg won the demonstration tournament and then returned in 88 for the first Olympics with tennis back in it and they were both the Wimbledon champions how fast their progress had been in those four years and um, yeah I mean Philippe Chatrier again someone who's you know when you're from my generation I know his name as being on the stadium at Roland Garros but kind of to know that he was this 
important and instrumental in getting tennis back into the Olympics is, I think, just adds a bit of texture to to that sort of piece of tennis history as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, he said that the Olympic Committee was kind of deluding itself if it thought that only amateurs or non well-earning athletes were in the Olympics because all of the all of the athletics and swimmers were getting big money deals from their sponsorship so it was time to have tennis in the olympics with its with its big athletes as well and and he made the case that a lot of governments and and governing bodies of sports kind of only take notice or direct their funds and attention towards sports that are in the olympics he was quoted in that same new york times piece um as saying, I, I wanted tennis to rub shoulders with Edwin Moses, Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis, athlete, top athletes making money. I pleaded that our professionals not be discriminated against. When I hear about the money these others are making in track, I hope it will make people get off my back, leave my millionaires alone. It's the most important thing to happen to tennis since the open movement, he said. 80% of the governments in the world will not support a sport unless it is in the Olympic Games. These will put those governments behind tennis and add to the boom. Got to love somebody who says, leave my millionaires alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the brazenness of, of that is is kind of amazing. Um, the the event, interestingly, I think it's one of only two uh, Olympic uh, tennis events or Olympic events that have taken place at the end of the calendar. So after the US Open, uh, this one and the Sydney Olympics in in 2000. So it took place uh, end of September, start of October. Um, it received a lot of a lot of coverage um um, US broadcasters, uh, the BBC in the UK, tennis being back in the Olympics was was a really big deal. There was scepticism, particularly among the top male players, Stefan Edberg and Tim Mayotte were the only members of the top 10 on the men's side to take part. Boris Becker was injured, um, but otherwise Mats Verlander, Ivan Lendl, Andre Agassi, John McEnroe, Pat Cash, uh, Jimmy Connors and Yannick Noah all opted not to play. The women's field was a lot stronger though. Steffi Graf, Chrissy Evert, uh, Gabriela Sabatini, Pam Shriver, Helena Sukova, they all did take part. Um, and at that stage, the men's event, um, and for several Olympics uh, afterwards, was all best of five sets, singles and doubles best of five sets so that that disparity between the men's and the women's and how the pros viewed it i found that really interesting yeah i, I was quite surprised to read that actually um i suppose I, I what i expected to see because i i knew the men's results probably better than the women's results i knew i knew that graf had obviously won the the golden slam quite interesting to watch those couple of minutes where she plays sabatini in the final and her reaction is not exactly ecstatic i mean she it's matter of fact maybe maybe that's something to do with the fact that she played 75 matches that year and won 72 maybe it just felt a little bit run of the mill but comparing it to when she completed the grand slam i saw the match point in the u.s open and she's much more animated in that particular instance i think because of the fact that i knew that Tim Mayotte and Miloslav Machir had competed in the final of the 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 men's event. I, I expected the women's event when to look when I looked down it to be weaker than it was, but actually it, it is really strong. 
Yeah, and and Zena Garrison, who we're going to hear from now, she well, she was a double medalist at that Olympics. She won a bronze uh, in the singles, and she also won a, a gold uh, alongside partner Pam Shriver in the doubles. And that was something that you'll have heard Pam Shriver talk about in uh, in the interview that uh, that I did with her and we put out a few weeks ago. But fascinating to hear from. From Garrison herself, David. It was it, what it was just hours ago that you were having a chit chat with uh, with Zena Garrison um, over over the airwaves. So let's hear from from the uh, the two time Olympic medalist in in 1988. She was the eighth seed uh, in the singles, and she was the number one doubles uh, seed alongside Pam Shriver. And she, as David was hearing, was extremely excited by by the prospect of getting to play in Olympics? I actually was extremely excited um, growing up in the community that I, I had grown up in, um, what we call the hood. Um, so, you know, track, field, track and field, and, you know, all of those, those sports were the Olympics. And, you know, my brother, who was an, um, who's like 11 years older than me, was a huge sports fanatics so anytime the olympics came around we watched everything <laughs> uh-huh oh well i can imagine what a great experience then and and did you did you get to stay in the village itself yeah i actually um i actually took my brother to go, to go to the olympics as well he stayed in the family village and i stayed in the olympic village and um you know it was it's actually really funny because when i went over there we're actually on the way on the plane i you know woke up and i'm like looking for my brother and he's in the back and he's like talking to all the other people that were going over there and it's like the most exciting plane ride i had ever been in and um, just enjoying it. So then even when I got over there, um, three or four days passed by and I called home and and I hadn't talked to my brother at all. And I, you know, was talking to my sister and them and they were saying, oh, yeah, your brother's having a great time. And I remember um, trying to figure out what was going on. And I remember uh, two guys were in the um, Olympic Village and they were getting some lunch. And so I heard them talk about, you know, hey, yeah, the black tennis player, her brother's really cool and stuff. And I said, I'm the black tennis player. Take me to my brother. And it was Roy Jones. <laughs> so, yeah. And so when I got over there, my brother and had this big old apartment and, you know, all the all the all the, the athletes. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, um, family members were co- coming in and out and just having a good time. And that was like that, that was just like so cool to go over there and see all the family members also um, being a close niche as we were on the other end, being in the Olympic Village. Yeah, well, that sums it up perfectly, doesn't it? Roy Jones Jr., one of the greatest boxers of all time. And uh, <laughs> Wow, a great story. Um, and, and what was it like generally to stay in the village for you? Yeah, for me, it was it was really cool because um, you know, um, coming from an individual sports, um, it was um, it was it was actually different. You know, it was very different. Um, so it took me a minute to kind of get used to the team atmosphere and everything but i knew a lot of the i knew some of the athletes already um just because i knew who they were and um so it was kind of cool and you get to meet people and 
And like Jackie Dawn and Kersey is still one of my best friends. Um, I speak to her on a regular. Um, you know, Carl Lewis is 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 one of my best friends, you know, also speak to. And so just to be able to be in their presence and, and to be the at the moment when things are going on for them, it was, it was kind of cool as well. Yeah, well, uh, did you not know them before that? Um, no, I mean, of course I knew of them, but, you know, and I actually met Carl a little bit after, but I met Jackie after the Olympics. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, goodness me, Mem- memories flooding back for for me. I was actually watching the uh, the hundred meters race with Lewis and uh, and Ben Johnson just a, a couple of days ago, just to re- yeah. remind myself. That was crazy times. <laughs> yeah, no, sure was. Well, your your journey at that Olympics well was both singles and doubles. Um, if we take the singles first. Um, the rules were a little different back then in in that you you didn't have a playoff for the bronze did you it was once no. you were into the semis you you had the bronze was that was that a relief to know that you'd got that medal or, or in hindsight would you have liked to have played a match and won it so to speak um i think i would take my medal <laughs> making sure that we had it you know and sharing it to get to the semis but you know of course i didn't know any difference in, until they changed it so for me just having the opportunity to have a bronze medal and to share it with the, the players that we were on the podium i i, I thought was actually pretty cool because if you make it to the semis you, you know to me both players should actually get it yeah, well, you've you've made some pretty decent progress in a draw to get to that stage for sure. Yeah. Um, now, in the doubles, you were partnering Pam, uh, Pam Shriver, and you beat her in the singles along the way there. W- w- was that a bit awkward? It was it, it, it was a little awkward because we Pam and I were staying together as well. So it was a little it was a little interesting and a little you know, but we had been practicing together and. You know, by that time, it's like you just figured who's going to win, who's going to who's going to win, and so it, it was a little awkward. But we we enjoyed it, and then us winning, you know, going on and winning the gold just made it even better. Yeah, I'm sure. What does that mean to you in hindsight? That gold medal. You know, at the time, I really didn't get it. You know, um, I didn't actually get what it meant until, you know, Pam got it because she was so patriotic and, you know, born on the 4th of July and just the whole thing. Like, she understood, you know, like what it meant to win for your country. And for me, it was a little different than a tennis match, but I didn't realize how big of a difference it was until I got off the plane um, coming home um, from the Olympics. And there were all these people in the airport waiting for when I got in. And it was like really late at night, like really late. And just to have all those people there. And then I realized you're winning for your country and you were forever going to be one of those gold medals that were won in the 1988 Olympics and can never be taken away from you. It's pretty cool. When I when I hear it like that, it sounds pretty cool. Um, what, yeah. does, what does it mean to you now, Zena? I mean, it's it's a long time ago now, but what when you yeah. think of it, what does it mean to you in the context of your life and your career? 
Well, it's it's not much different than what I said, other than you've had more and more people that have added on. And, and so now that was the first entry back into uh, the Olympics for tennis. And so that withstands all that has happened. But when you sit back and you think about, you know, what, how the Olympics has become a part in the Olympics. I mean, within tennis has become a part of the Olympics now. Um, You know, it's pretty cool to think that, you know, in 1988, we brought it back and we, and it was so interesting that they kept it going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I don't know whether this is true, Zina. You you tell me, I I was reading, uh, I'm very sorry to read that your, that your home was caught up in Hurricane Harvey a few years ago. Oh yeah, it's true. (laughs) It's true. I also read that, that your Olympic medals were one of the things you were able to rescue. Is that, is that right? Yep. It was one of the things, um, for some reason, so I decided to go to my sister's house because I live by myself and I was kind of like just a little on the outskirts of, of Houston. Um, and so I packed up everything and I took, um, I brought my Olympic medals and I also brought the, um, it's a painting. It's a, a this portrait book that I have of two very famous African American artists, artists and a portrait. My Angelo wrote poetry to John Biggers, um, and I picked up. I went back in the house and I picked up those two things, and not knowing that I would come back to the house and where I had them, they would have been ruined. I mean, so, um, well, I had the, my, um, medals were in a, in a, in a metal fiberglass thing, but so they might've been okay, but the portraits and, and, uh, poetry and artist stuff would have been ruined. So yeah, I, I just literally went back in the house. I had everything in the car and I went back in and I, I picked up those two things and Pam Shriver was actually the first person I called. <laughs> and I told her the story. <laughs> really, I mean that's. Yeah. I guess that shows what you you and she share that forever, don't you? Yeah. Well, it was it is one of those things like no one else would understand but me and her. And um, she was at the U.S. Open, and I remember, she, you know, I was telling her the story and telling her what happened and telling her all that. And then I remember Chrissy got on the phone and smoked a little bit too, but. It's like, it is interesting to think that um, it meant that much to me in that time. And I don't know why I went back in there, but Pam was the one I wanted to share it with. Mm. Do, do you still feel close to, to Pam now? As a, I mean, as a result yeah, in some ways? We don't talk every day. We talk every once in a while, but it's like we've developed this bond. You know, we call us, we call ourselves the sisters of soul. Um S-E-O-U-L, like yeah. Seoul, Korea, is when we won. <laughs> yeah. So, um, for the Olympics. So, it's always special when, so when that time comes around. And um, actually, I just interviewed Pam on our little show, Game Set Chat, and she showed the picture of me and her. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. What a lovely story. Yeah, you can just, you can, you can hear the power of it, can't you, in, in, in everything she has to say there. And I think there's a... I mean, I don't want to spoil a future future interviews that we're going to play for you too much, but that there's kind of a theme of um, which she picks up on 
there and and talks about really well of people's feelings about their medal and their achievement in the Olympics kind of evolving over time and there being like little events in in their life that make them actually realize what a what a big achievement it is and obviously for Zena it was you know that return to that return to the airport and the the reception that that she received and you know it's something that makes you realize that it it's something different and unique and likely never to be repeated I mean there are there are some examples of people that have won medals at multiple Olympics but not many not many I mean there is a there's 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 quite a lot of poignancy about medal winning at the Olympics because of how rare and mostly unrepeatable it is yeah uh, and I think in tennis, and particularly in 88 and 92, for the sake of this particular episode of the podcast, because it was not a fixture in the tennis world, it just, it just didn't really come up as, as being a massive deal until it happened. And I think there's still a little bit of that. I don't think a lot of the time we talk about it in quite the same way as we do as the slams. But then when it starts, you suddenly feel completely wrapped up in it. But and I think back then, a lot of players just didn't know whether is this a big deal? Uh, is this is this worth doing? I mean, it, I, I'm am I doing it or not? Where do I? And and then with time, with time they learn about the Olympics, and I think that they perhaps become a little bit more comfortable with tennis having been part of it as well, um, because there are still a lot of people who think that tennis and basketball with NBA stars and people who earn a lot of money and aren't amateurs that shouldn't be there there's a lot of people who st- still feel like that and back then it was it was probably more people who thought that than not yeah there's kind of a two-way debate isn't there there's kind of does does the Olympics need tennis and does tennis need the Olympics and Zena Garrison speaking there and as you said it's this theme throughout the interviews that we'll hear perfectly justifies why tennis does need the Olympics or why it's better for being in the Olympics. That Because what she says there about that kind of realising the value of the medal when she felt that it was a collective achievement, like she'd done it for her country and arriving back in the airport, she realised that. You don't really get that with Grand Slams. I mean, I think I think back to Darren Cahill saying saying what Simona Halep's Roland Garros meant to the people in Romania. That was a that was an example of that. But basically, every Olympic medal that is won because you are competing for your country is different. And it, you know, Dave, Davis Cup and Fed Cup can provide that as well, but not not on the same level as the Olympics because the Olympics is just this massive sporting event. So I think Garrison there has touched on something that we will kind of see as a theme throughout as well. And it's something that cuts through the tennis bubble, isn't it? I mean, any everybody, every single person on the platform, well, okay, I mean, maybe not people in, in remote tribes in the Amazon, but, you know, pretty much every single person on the planet knows what the Olympics is and understands what an Olympic medal is and means. And relative to the number of people on the planet that understand what a Grand Slam is, um, you know, it's it's probably a ratio of five to one 
I don't know. I'm completely plucking that out of nowhere, but you know, it's it is a different kettle of fish altogether. It's you can you can say to anyone, "I'm an Olympic gold medalist," and they'll just instantly get it and and respect you and know what that know what that means. And that is different to being a being a Grand Slam champion. Obviously, people in the tennis tennis bubble know that that's an immense achievement. But to do something that cuts through all of that. Um, it's just incredible. I can't, I, I can't imagine what it feels like to to have an Olympic medal. I mean, I do try and imagine <laughs> often. <laughs> she'd be wearing it right now. If she, if she'd won I would one back never in take it off. Honestly, every single uh, interview that I've done, every bit, I, I ask every person I've ever interviewed, where do you keep your medal? Uh, and not. A single person has said, uh, around my neck, I sleep in it every night. I can't, they're all so, so coy about it. They're like, oh, it's in a safe or, you know, oh, I can't remember where it is. I think it might be in the attic. What? What? <laughs> you don't know where it is at all times. I would keep it about my person 100% of the time. Um, but that's... that's <laughs> Rant over. <laughs> Um, right then, so that was the women's uh, event in 88. The men's event, uh, as we've said, the final was between Tim Mayotte, who was the second seed despite rank- being ranked 10th in the world. As we've said, the, the, it was a really different flavour to the men's event in Seoul um, in 88. And he was uh, he made his way through to uh, the gold medal match where he faced Miroslav Machir, who had won the 1987 ATP finals. He'd beaten John McEnroe um, in the final there. Mayot beat Brad Gilbert in the straight sets in the semifinals in Seoul in 88. Um, and Machir came through in the final, 3-6, 6-2, 6-4, 6-2. Um, and Machir said that winning the gold medal was was the standout moment of his career, even though he he reached two Grand Slam finals, the US Open in 86, the Australian Open uh, in 89, lost lost both of those. From the New York Times, um, writing about... the, that that achievement it says in a departure from the expressionless mask he usually wears on the court this is about Machir Machir threw his racket into the air and ran to the net with a smile after Mayotte netted a backhand volley on match point several minutes later Machir Mayotte Brad Gilbert and Stefan Edberg of Sweden took part in the medal ceremony all appearing to enjoy the Olympic moment that modern day tennis players never grew up thinking that they would have a chance to play a chance to enjoy, even. Um, and Mayotte 28 has been one of the biggest boosters of Olympic tennis the past two weeks, saying it was a welcome departure from the normal preoccupations of the tennis tour. There was even something worthwhile finishing second today as he left the Olympic Park Stadium with a silver medal draped around his neck. He said, it's strange because here the emphasis is on medals instead of 100% on winning. So there is consolation in getting to the medal group. The ceremony was fantastic. It's such a different way of doing things. Um, and David has been chatting to uh, Tim Mayotte and get, getting his uh, reflections on that Olympics in 1988 and something about that tournament that was particularly special for him. So my parents had never seen me play pro tennis. They were 
too nervous. But uh, I said, oh, Ma, I got into the Olympics. And she said, oh, I'm going. It was within, <laughs> within an instant, it certainly mirrored my perspective, which was this is going to be something really special. And uh, turned out it was a great thing because it's the only uh, tennis she ever saw me play and uh, obviously saw me win a silver medal. Wow. What a, what an amazing story that she, she'd always been too nervous, but not on this occasion. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Just uh, to, her response just in a delightful way shocked me. And then uh, I remember walking out into the stadium, 80,000 people, and uh, they had uh, she had great seats, so she was down close. And I just I couldn't believe it. I didn't know where she was, but I picked her out as we were circling the the stadium. There's a great shot of her on. Uh, I was on NBC with a. Uh, I was had match point to win a because in those days you, two people got uh, bronze medals, so it was the quarterfinals, and I had a match point, and uh, the camera showed her head like down in her, you know, down in her lap, and then uh, when I won, she just popped up like a jack in the box. Jumping around, so it was it was fun to watch. So maybe she didn't see me play, but she was there. Yeah, wow, what a what an amazing moment. I mean, how how did that make you feel versus everything else that you've done in your career? I mean, you've had a, a lot of success, and here you are playing for, for Olympic medals in front of your mother. Uh, uh, just uh, well, is that plus the playing for my country? And also playing as part of some, you know, much larger event. It just was, uh, it just makes you feel like you belong. And tennis is such a lonely sport. I think to me that was the most difficult thing of it, being an individual sport. And for those events, but particularly the Olympics and Davis Cup, just feel like you're part of something much bigger. And uh, it was uh, just a late, you know, elation. I remember going after the... The last night we had a meeting, a uh, big cocktail party with uh, all the folks. And yeah, just, it was, uh, you just feel like you're part of something bigger. And that is not always the case in, in tennis. You know, I think at the Grand Slams, you feel, I felt this certainly, particularly at Wimbledon, but you feel you're, you're part of a bigger story, which is, that's exciting in its own way, but not cer- certainly a, a team which is what you feel like when you're in uh, in the Olympics. Mm. When you think back to your run to the silver medal, what what sticks out first of all? I remember how first of all how nervous I was at the start. I played this Korean kid in the first round, and I missed my serve first game, first point, and then I hit a second serve that barely reached the service line on my side of the court. <laughs> so. I give you a sense of how nervous I was. I think it's the only time I've ever done it in my career. And, uh, you know, I was just so nervous. But uh, once I started to get into it, I really started to relax. And again, that feeling of being part of something bigger. Every night I would go to uh, a different sporting event, boxing. Where I watched the Janet Evans and Lucanus do uh, swim and diving. And uh, we went to track and field uh, having I think the greatest thing was having dinner with uh, all the other athletes in the in the cafeteria letter cafeteria you know it would be this wonderful uh, sometimes overbearing smell of kimchi 
and you sit down next to Carl Lewis or, uh, like I said, Lucanus or, and everybody was just completely open and, uh, just this feeling of, of, uh, wow, all these athletes all over. I remember doing my laundry and there was a couple of world-class table tennis players from, uh, from China. And we were able to eke out a few, a few words in English, my Mandarin not being very good. So you just got, I just sort of glided around feeling I'm part of uh, something fantastic. And, you know, strange way that took pressure off. And, and this was village life. It was kind of wonderfully Spartan. You'd walk in, uh, the sheets were a kind of a strong paper, I remember. It had that feeling of kind of bunking in together. And then six o'clock in the morning, maybe 5.45, there was this <laughs> bizarrely uh, Korean style electronic music that would play super early I, for some reason to get everybody up. I have no idea why, but I remember being uh, kind of pissed off when we woke up to that first morning. It happened every morning, 5.45 or 6 o'clock. The music would play uh, through the whole village, and then uh, everyone would, would walk over to the uh, to the cafeteria. And uh, But the, the village feel was just something you can't even, you know, you just just with all these athletes, all these countries. It's like you got to start to believe in the transformative uh, element of sports. That's great. What about your your final match and your opponents, Miroslav Machir? Because I, so many of the people I've, we've spoken to for this series, their biggest moment of their careers, so many players have come at the Olympics and, and that would have been the one for him. What, what, what do you remember of the final? I had been attacking well all week. I had beaten Brad Gilbert the day before very handily. And uh, so I really thought I had a chance. And then he just started hitting these just ridiculous passing shots. And uh, I, I tried to attack his weak serve, but he, his backhand, his forehand, he could change direction so fast. I think he's kind of like, if you look at him, he's like one of the first modern movers, the way he played so much open stance. And, uh, and then uh, he just ran away with it at the end. And he was, he, I remember him throwing his racket way up in the air. He was just, just ecstatic. And uh, that was, you know, I was happy for him, obviously, because you know, he just was so clearly uh, delighted with, with winning a medal. Your reaction to, to winning silver, it's one of those strange things, isn't it? You, you lose a match, but you got a medal. Yeah, it's a, that's a really, really, really good point, because in most places you say runner-up. Some of my, I teach these kids, and yesterday they said, well, how'd you, you know, how'd you do in the slam? They're, well, I lost in the semis in Wimbledon. But there, you know, you would say, well, I want, a, I want a bronze medal or I want a silver medal. And it just gives it a whole different vibe and feeling. And my kids will say, oh, can I see your medal? As opposed to, I don't know if people would say, can I see your runner-up trophy? So <laughs> it gives you a kind of stamp of success that isn't often there when you don't win a tournament. Where do you keep your medal? I'm at, uh, there's a historic club here that I'm a member of, the Longwood Cricket Club, which is here in Boston. It's a famous old club. It was the site of the first Davis Cup. It's my home club, beautiful grass courts, and uh, they have a whole room of of trophies, and, and so my medal is kept there. Yeah. Just as a final one, you mentioned... You were there at the outset of Olympic tennis, really, its return at least. Um, how? What do you think of the way it's evolved since then, that event? 
Well, it's continued to get more and more important. That uh, I think in some ways it started with the, obviously the players coming away feeling that it was an incredible experience. Then there was a great stamp put on it with Graf winning the, you know, the quote-unquote golden slam. Uh, and that certainly put a, uh, a special uh, glow on on that first Olympics. And then from there, it's just taken off. You know, the players uh, have openly talked about how valuable it is to them, whether it's the Williams sisters or Agassi or obviously Federer, or, you know, it's, it's seen as, you know, Murray, obviously, at, <laughs> at the All England Club. So there's been so many great moments that it's now, I think it's, the players would say it's right up there at the, at the very top. Someone else that isn't keeping his medal about his person at all times. Indeed, but I think it's pretty clear how much it uh, it means to him. And uh, what what a lovely bloke! Um, yeah. uh, he he's somebody who won Queens shortly before I started working there a few years before, and I always always used to enjoy watching him. People used to call him Gentleman Tim Mayotte, you know, and you <laughs> get that sense, don't you? And and actually, last night, a few hours after we'd we'd done that interview, he just sent me a note saying how much he'd enjoyed it. I mean, I, just out of, out of the blue. And uh, I, I just think it's a, it's a lovely thing for him to know, isn't it, that he's... He's always going to have that medal, and I, and I, and also, what lovely words about Miloslav Machir. You know, he, I, I remember Machir playing, and and that sums him up really. That that balance he had, that ability to hit passing shots on the run and out of nowhere. He wasn't a massive power player, but just beautifully balanced, and and he he had real chances as did Mayotte to to reach Grand Slam finals, and it just didn't quite happen for them. But here they were. This was their moment uh, in a in a big final, and um, and memories never to be forgotten for them. I love how the Olympics, well, tennis in the Olympics has evolved, become a really important part of the calendar. But there's something really special and authentic about hearing these descriptions of what it was like, sort of back in the day kind of thing the first one it's kind of like seeing seeing your favorite band before everyone knows how good they are in a really small venue and you get this really intimate experience of it and um you know just hearing hearing him there talk about the cafeteria and i'm slightly intrigued by whether there was actually a really a space by next to carl lewis or whether like everyone was trying to sit next to carl lewis it's like it's like the university campus trying to sit next to the coolest guy and get the best conversations um yeah and just i just love that idea of the silver medal being a reminder of achieving something and something you've won you know just the contrast of that having just um wimbledon relived and hearing goran talk about the plate you know that's <laughs> that's a reminder plate. of losing plate. whereas whereas the, an olympic medal doesn't matter the color of it is a reminder of an experience and winning something yeah it's just i i, I really like the way he kind of framed that and the overwhelming smell of kimchi <laughs> is uh is is something is evocative for me of my uh, Pyeongchang Olympic experience from from 2018. If I close my eyes and imagine Pyeongchang, the overwhelming smell of kimchi invades my my senses. So that was really evocative. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Um, so that was Tennis has Return to the Olympics in 1988 and four years later... In Barcelona, we had the only uh, Olympic tennis event since tennis's return in 88 to be staged on clay. Um, in terms of the Olympics generally that year, um, it was the year that Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia took part under their own flags for the first time. Other former Soviet republics participated under the CIS flag, Commonwealth of Independent States. Uh, South Africa and Albania competed again after a, a period uh, not being allowed to compete in the Olympics. Linford Christie became the oldest man to win a hun- the 100-metre gold uh, at 32 years of age. Vitaly Sherbo of Belarus won six golds in gymnastics, the all-around parallel bars, rings, vault, pommel horse and the team event. I think, David, you'll probably remember this one. Derek Redmond was injured after a hundred, uh, injured 150 metres from the finish of the 400 metres, but carried on in immense pain. His father jumped the barriers to help him around, but let him go just before the finish so he could cross the line alone. Yeah. Chinese woman Zhang Shan, Zhang Shan won the skeet clay pigeon shooting final against three men. She beat the Olympic record and equaled the world record in doing so. Germany was unified for the Games for the first time, um, but won less medals, fewer medals, than the East Germans had done in 1988. In the shot put, all three medals were won (laughs) by athletes who had previously served doping bans. 
and the US basketball team was labelled the dream team for bringing together Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird. And I think that um, the whole dream team feature of the Barcelona Olympics is something that was referenced by every tennis player that that we talked to about this Olympics. I think it's probably the thing that that springs to mind prominently for, for most people when you think about Barcelona 92. It was this sprinkle of stardust, which is kind of not very Olympic-y. It's sort of counter to what the Olympics is actually about. The Olympics is actually about getting really into archery for a week. But the conjunction of getting really into archery for a week with this crazy crazy stardust of magic johnson michael jordan et al being around was was a a heady concoction i think Mm, i remember watching all of their matches as well i mean the, the problem was it took on an exhibition feel because they were beating teams by 40 50 points it was just the matches were just not competitive even though there are some fantastic european basketball nations croatia and and serbia and obviously croatia was a newly independent country but in that they actually played against the dream team and, and brilliant basketball team but these were the most well-known basketball stars really in history all at the same time pretty much the ones you've just mentioned there and they were at the peak of their powers and they were brought together to play on the same team i mean it was just it was you couldn't not watch that was the thing it's just that it didn't really feel like the olympics in in a but in a but it also didn't well i don't know i'm I don't know whether I'm playing devil's advocate here, but it did it detract from the Olympics? Did it detract from the detract from the, the what the Olympics really is about, which is you know the guy from Vanuatu accidentally having a fry up before his way in? Well, I, I just feel like if you if you'd offered me a final in the basketball between two other countries that was exhilarating and close and no nobody's got any idea who's going to win you've got to ask which one you want more do you want what feels like an exhibition and almost and just an inevitable result or do you want to have that drama and uh, and Matt, that's where you which one would you which one would you want there was a novelty about the dream team that I enjoyed, and I was a I was a huge NBA fan. Yeah, so we, I enjoy- we've seen your nineties get up, David. Oh yeah, you oh, had every bit of nineties NBA paraphernalia that was available <laughs> on the market. Oh, yeah, David I, wore the nineties. I, I had Chicago Bulls cap. I had a, a, a t shirt with a massive picture of Michael Jordan's face on it. Uh, I had a, a, a Chicago Bulls flag in my room. I had a, Did you have Air Jordans? Stuff. Did they make Air Jordans in your size? There used to be a, a there used to be a, a bloke who worked for my dad's company that would periodically go to the United States to for work, and he would go with the instruction from my dad to bring back some Air Jordan boots that were big enough for me because they didn't <laughs> do them over here. I, I, <laughs> funny enough, I didn't fly very well. Uh, Relatively speaking, I'm same height as Michael Jordan. How come he's that? How, how come he's that athletic? Anyway, um, and, and there and there the similarities end. Yeah, I, I just look like I say it felt like a novelty, but it didn't. Overall, it just didn't feel quite right. Um, so where do I but, stand but, on tennis? But, you know? but, 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 well, yeah, yeah. So if that doesn't feel right, is it not exactly the same principle as 
Is tennis superstars coming and playing in the Olympics? Well, I, I can see the problem. The only thing is that not all the best tennis players in the world were on the same team. But it's not a team event. So you think well, the fact that you think it's different that that principle applies differently to team events than to to individual. I just I just enjoyed having country against country. Uh, and okay, occasionally you might re- get two singles players from the same country facing each other. But I, um, I suppose what I'm getting at is, did the presence of the dream team and and everything that went with it expose the fundamental problems with of of having professional athletes at the Olympics? I, ju- I, I don't think it can be used as an example for everything because it is so extreme. It's the most extreme example possible. Um, but if you want to, if you want to use it as an example, then I do find it a problematic one. And there were certainly arguments used like that for tennis, and and for many years I did feel kind of uncomfortable about tennis as well but that those have dissipated over the years i think partly because of the buy-in of the players the the way they so clearly love it and and actually what's what's fantastic about the tennis event is just how many unlikely stories it has thrown up matt where do you stand on it well i think the point david makes is is an interesting one that in tennis it feels different because it's not like the professionals are denying anyone else in the way that the dream team kind of were. Whereas in tennis, it's just, it's all the best players in the world competing for something else and a gold medal. And I just think, I think it works in tennis, but I can, I can understand why people would, would have maybe had issues with just this one sort of superpower coming into the basketball and sweeping all before them. And yet at the same time, I'm sure I would have been swept up by that and following that story and, and probably more invested in the basketball than I would have been otherwise. Like, I think that's probably, you know, an argument that you could make that I would probably have watched basketball to watch them and therefore, as as a result, seen other teams as well, maybe even got into the sport. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think I'm always looking to, to want to have iconic moments in sport and this is undeniably one and one that I feel... I'm sort of glad that it's happened. There you go. Had he been alive in 1992, Matt would have been Matt would have been <laughs> tuning in. Um, in terms of the tennis uh, in 92, uh, it was held in uh, end of July, start of August. In the women's singles, 16-year-old Jennifer Capriati came from a set down to beat Steffi Graf, uh, 6-4 in the third to win her gold medal. Um, in the women's doubles, Gigi Fernandez, who we'll be hearing from shortly, and Mary Jo Fernandez beat Conchita Martinez and Arantxa Sanchez Vicario to win doubles gold. Um, the men's event, it was a way stronger field than in Seoul in 88. Eight of the world's top 10 took part. There were a lot of upsets, though. Jim Courier, um, who was the heavy favourite um, in 92, given what he had achieved uh, in the year up until that point. He lost in round three. Edberg lost round one. Sampras lost round three. Becker round three. Chang round two. Forger round two. And Michael Stieck in the singles lost in round two. Goran Ivanisevic at number four. I was the only top 10 seed to reach the quarterfinals in the men's, along with four unseeded players, including the eventual champion, Mark Rosse. Now, I, I spoke to Mark Rosse um, just a few days ago, an interview that 
that David set up. David, you knew him from from your days as as an ATP communications manager, and it was it was a nice enough interview. Um, you know, it was interesting to, to talk to. He's obviously not somebody that that speaks that much these days about his career. Um, he's obviously not, you know, a really really emotional guy. Sort of trying to get him to talk about. Um, the emotions of of winning Olympic gold and how he feels about it now, it was kind of like I was speaking a slightly different language to him. But he had some nice, he had some nice sort of interesting lines of facets to his experience. He said, I asked him whether he had, I asked him whether he stayed in the Olympic Village, and he said yes, he did. I asked him whether he got the chance to to watch any other sports while he was there, because that seems like a big part of the Olympic experience for athletes getting a taste and being inspired by other sports. <laughs> he got really arsey and he said, no, I, no, I blooming didn't. Um, he said, I was constantly asking for tickets, didn't get any. Um, and when he reached the final, he, he, you know, was desperately asking the Federation just for tickets to his own, his own match. And they, the, I think the Swiss tennis Federation, it was, they weren't forthcoming with, with those tickets. So he said, Oh, I've got a back injury. I might not be able to play the final. And then suddenly those tickets were forthcoming. And he said, Oh, I, I haven't got a back injury anymore. Um, <laughs> so I loved how honest he was, he was about, about that. Um, uh, but yeah, apart, apart from that, his, his account of, you know, it obviously means a lot to him being an Olympic gold medalist, et cetera, et cetera. But there wasn't anything hugely, you know, remarkable or notable from the interview. Um, and I was sort of texting you guys afterwards saying, yeah, it was, it was nice, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly really what we'd, we'd use from it. And then as I was texting you, he called me back and said this. For me, the really weird and important thing for me to be Olympic champion is not to to be the the champion. It's like, as I was the only medal, you know, for Switzerland and, uh, it's like the nice feeling is like many times I cross people and uh, that I don't really know and uh, they come to me and they say, ah, congrats for the medal, I remember. And all the time they explain me where they were towards the final. And sometimes it's like, I remember I was in Spain, I remember I was in this part of the world, I had to find the TV in the, in the, the cafe and, you know, and it's like the nice feeling of it is like to share something with like a bunch of people, you know, for like uh, during one day and we have something in common, you know, with this all these people, and it's, it's a nice feeling for me. Does that uh, still happen? Yeah, it still happens. Uh, you know, if I go somewhere in Switzerland and people, they met me for the first time, they say, I remember, you know, uh, I was on holidays, this, I remember, like, finding, uh, I had to find a TV because I wanted to, because, you know, it was like Switzerland didn't make any uh, any medals, you know, the whole Olympics, so for sure it was something big for the country, and, uh, and it's a nice feeling. It's weird, and, but it's also nice that for one day, you have something in common with a lot of people, you know, because you share something. Is it easier to play for your country than for yourself? For for me, honestly, I think I was always playing better when I played for my country than I, when I was playing for myself because it was the kind of uh, extra pressure. Then it depends how you handle the pressure. But for me, it was like... A, it's like being on war, you know, I have to, to win for the country, otherwise, uh, you know, it was not like, if I lose, if I have to win. Sometimes when I did for myself, I have to admit that, okay, I was motivated for sure, but 
it was not the same pressure. But when I was playing for the country, it always always managed to to play well because it was this uh, I think this extra pressure. Like I put my uh, you know my everything I had on the court for when I played for my country. Playing for your country is like going to war. That's um, that's a heck of a line, isn't it? I'm glad he called me back. <laughs> I just that. love the fact I love the fact that he called you back because mm. he'd thought about what he'd said and he realized you know there's there's something else that gets to me about the Olympics some, and my my gold medal I mean I love the fact that he considered that and wanted to let you know what it was you know I, he is somebody I've known for 25 years and and look, he's he can be a difficult character sometimes. I've also found him to be really, really quite sweet sometimes, and he's stuck up for me once or twice in situations. So you never quite know what you're going to get with Mark Rosset. If you plan for a certain eventuality, a certain answer, you're probably not going to get that one. You're probably going to get something completely different. But um, no, I, I really liked that. And I'm actually, I remember following, I didn't see all of these matches, but when he beat Jim Courier... Six four six two six one, I think it was, and Courier had won the last two French Open titles that that had been held, and and it was on clay, and he thrashed him. It just it just hit you that this guy is is on on form in a way that could take him a long way, and then suddenly he's he's crushing the rest of the draw. I mean, there, there were so many great stories in that Olympics because I think he beat Goran Ivanisevic in the in the quarterfinal or in the semifinals, and Goran had played four successive five set matches and won them all, and that has never never happened before or since. Um, and he was on fumes by the time he played Rosse, and, and Rosse knows that, and he he said, you know, I took advantage of that, but. You know what? What a what a great story that is. That Goran, whose country Croatia has just established independence and the war is starting, and and he is trying to play for his country in a way that Mark Rosse describes as how he felt without a war. You know, and it's it really does get you. And Goran eventually managed to 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 get a medal, and and it meant the absolute world to him. And then you've got Rosse going through to the final, playing Giordia Racy, home player. They go deep into a fifth set, and Rosse is on fumes, and he says, "I can I can barely get through this match, but I just refuse to give up." It's fantastic. Yeah, five hour, three minute final against uh, against the Catalan in Catalonia. Just I, I imagine the atmosphere was absolutely incredible for that one and uh, I read some quotes from Goran which kind of broke my heart when he said that um, he landed home at one o'clock in the morning back in Croatia and there was nobody waiting because the country was at war as you said and you know it's one of the proudest moments of his career on a personal level and you know we've heard about Zena Garrison talk about that reception she got when she got back that's that's kind of the thing that you expect to get with the Olympics is that that kind of shared euphoria and uh, Goran didn't get it in that in that moment which um which is quite sad really but obviously you know he won bronze in singles and doubles that that olympics and um it's it's one of his standout achievements didn't he also carry the flag for croatia mm-hmm. yeah their their first ever olympics as a as a nation by the way uh, Mark Rosse lamenting in the New York Times piece here that he was only offered tickets to modern pentathlon and archery. What 
<laughs> oh, wish I'd wish I'd known that before. Hang on, it, modern a archery, obviously as established, you know, prime Olympic sport. B modern pentathlon is the very it's the most Olympic-y of all the Olympic events, isn't it? I mean, it's bananas and ridiculous. Um, Mark Russell wasn't into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, did he try? <laughs> Sounds like he didn't accept those tickets, did he? Modern pentathlon is the one where they. Um, <laughs> they have to ride a horse, but it's not a horse they've ever ridden before. There's like a, a stable full of horses and they so they start off by doing a run, like a cross-country run. Um, then, hang on, I do, I'm, I'm hazy on the order. I think there's... There's some fen- shooting, isn't there? There's fencing. There's definitely fencing. And then they... And then they go on a run and they stop the run every now and then to do shooting. Um, there's swimming. Um, and and then there is horse riding, but it's on a horse that you've never seen before. There's like a stable full of horses and you just go and you're sort of allocated one and you have to mount it. I mean, it's... it's is th- does this not sound like entertainment to you, Mark Rosse? <laughs> Come on. They should do that in tennis. We just have to randomly pick a partner that you've never played with before and play with them yeah. for the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, this is... Talk about a trick missed by all other sports. It sounds like the absolute best entertainment imaginable. And it remains in the Olympics because... Um, it was um, the Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the modern Olympic Games. He claims to have invented the modern pentathlon. So its fate is sort of bound up with the whole Olympic movement. So there you go. Maybe that's a sport I could do. Well, there's lots of sports. There's five disciplines. I mean, there, and, and succeed at. <laughs> And succeed at. Um, so that was Mark Rosse in 1992, the uh, the men's singles gold medalist in the men's doubles. Now that was fascinating. And actually, when when we were looking back over results from from Olympics and sort of uh, devising our target list of interviewees, I think all of us went, "Wow, Michael Stieck won a, a gold medal with Boris Becker." I mean, I don't know whether you remember that happening at the time, David, but I had no idea that that, that had happened. And I thought possibly it might have been a typo. Cause I... Uh, no, I, I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, but it was one of those that with so many things being shown on TV from the Olympics, it it does kind of pass you by. That's what tends to happen. You see the results and so forth. So it was it was fascinating to go back and actually watch some of the footage, which I did this week, of seeing these two players who, frankly in the media coverage that I used to read back then, and I wasn't working in tennis in 1992, but the media coverage was that they didn't get along um, and were were quite quite famously frosty with each other. And yet here they were playing doubles together for their country and hugely successfully. Should we hear from Michael Stick? It's another, another one of uh, David's interview um, coups. Uh, um, yeah, David's been speaking to Michael Stick and he asked him how he remembered that time back in 1992. Looking back now, it's uh, it's it was an incredible experience. It was so different to our regular tennis world. And obviously winning the, the gold medal um, is something I would have at that time exchanged against the Wimbledon title, for example. But 
now I would not exchange it against anything else. Wow, that says a lot. Yeah. Well, understanding that, that the Olympic Games is the biggest you have in the world of sports. I mean, obviously, it unifies um, societies and countries and athletes from all over the world, which no other sport event in, does in, in the way the Olympic Games does it. And uh, I think that you are getting very aware of when you are there, when you're in the Olympic Village and you, 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 you're part of the whole sports world and uh, that just like after retiring and finishing my career it just like sinks more in that you the gold medal is a gold medal you know not a lot of people have a gold medal not a lot of people have a Wimbledon trophy but gold medal is overall uh, the bigger thing in the world of sports I I read a big article interview with Jim Courier from back in 92 who was talking about wanting to stay in the Olympic Village Do, did you stay there I did stay in the village yeah what was it like? Interesting. <laughs> Again, not knowing what to expect. We shared a house with the uh, fences um, and, uh, from Germany. And uh, as we tennis players were more seen as the uh, sports millionaires and a lot of athletes didn't feel like we belonged to be part of the Olympic Games. You know, it was the second year, uh, second time that tennis was an official sport at the olympic games after 84 where it was like just a show show sport again after many many years so we had to really fight for for the respect i felt to to be accepted as athletes that are trying to win medals for germany for our country and uh, after we did that it was a great experience to be part of of all the sports and to see people from countries that you've never heard of before and you never seen certain i mean i've been in sports interested you know a lot of sports but some of the sports and athletes you didn't know and one of the experiences was like standing in the big big mensa where like all the athletes go and get their breakfast and lunch and stuff like that and i was just putting something on my plate and i just looked down to the floor and i saw like shoe size 58 i think and i looked up and i saw the tallest chinese basketball player female and I thought, like, okay, that's the Olympic Games, you know. When did you ever get to stand next to the tallest woman from China? <laughs> so, <laughs> so those little details in exchanging, you know, those they exchange all those little, um, how do you call those things? Those uh, you, you put to your jacket, those little pins. Uh, buttons, yeah, pins, pins. I mean, there's huge area where, where all the athletes from all the countries exchange pins, and then the athletes that lose in their competition in the pre-preliminary rounds, you know, they start party from the second day on with ghetto blasters and running through the Olympic Village, and it, it was uh, it was a multicultural um, village where people from all over the world come together but have the same purpose. Was it ever? in doubt that you would stay in the Olympic Village? Because uh, Jim was saying in this article, you know, that Sampras came in, checked in, looked around and checked out and went straight to the, to the nearest five-star <laughs> hotel. <laughs> and it's not like what you're necessarily used to as tennis players. Oh, well, it's not. I mean, especially because the village, it was like apartments. And we shared an apartment with, I think, four or five people. Uh, it was Nikki Pillage. It was... Uh, Someone from the German Federation staying there. It was Charlie and it was myself. Boris stayed in a hotel. So I think we were four. Um, it was a three-bedroom apartment. So I had my room. Charlie had his room. And Nikki Pillar shared a room with a person from the German Federation. He had one small living room and like a kitchenette, more or less. It was extremely hot in Barcelona that year. It was very hot. So no air conditioning. You just had a fan. Uh, the fridge, like the, the ice 
part of the fridge there just like broke down after three days <laughs> so so it was like being it was like a community and living together in an apartment and traveling to your sports site every single day but that was one of the things i definitely wanted to do because that for me is the olympic games it's not just staying in a hotel and going from the side to the hotel and back and forth that would be like another regular tournament and that was for me no doubt about it that i wanted to stay in the village how much do you remember about the doubles um well we came as boris stayed on in a hotel and, and i stayed in the village we always came together on site uh, with nikki for practice and everything and we parted when we were done and we both had a focus we both lost early in singles and we knew if we wanted to win a medal we could only do it in doubles and uh, we know we had the capability of doing that so we had to really stick together and and i think we were unseated if i remember i'm not sure 100 percent, but i think we were unseated and we had a tough draw i don't get the full draw from my head but it was like obviously casal sanchez in the quarters i think as the toughest match playing them in their hometown and uh, it was just great i mean we both really worked well together and we 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 focused on the goal and we managed to do that as a team coming into that olympics what was your relationship with boris like you'd beaten him the year before the wimbledon final he said that you 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 would never have imagined that we would have done this together if you'd have seen us a week before but what what are your memories of of your relationship with him I think that we both, I mean, we played doubles before in Monte Carlo that year before the Olympic Games as a, as a tryout, and we won the doubles in Monte Carlo. So we knew that we would work well together. Um, the, my relationship with Boris was always full of respect for what the other person has achieved. Um, there was never a doubt of that. A lot of respect for my side for, for his uh, achievements and, and victories and the way he had his career. Um, and that was always the case, but we were opponents and uh, whenever we played each other we wanted to win and coming from the same country that doesn't make it better <laughs> i mean there's even bigger rivalry and for that reason it was just a lot of things were made by the media and by the by the papers and stuff like that and we jumped on that train time to time but um, also coming to the olympics it was like um yeah we wanted to do better than the other in singles we both failed and then we just sat down as professionals said now we got to do it together and we managed. So it, I think it just shows how much respect we had for each other. It was uh, Nikki Pillage. I mean, you have to give so much credit to Nikki because, uh, I mean, what Nikki has done for the German tennis is uh, unspoken of. And he's never received the thanks and the gratitude that he deserves for that. I mean, I think we all owe him a lot. And Nikki decided, I mean, at that time, I was playing doubles with Udo Riglewski. And we were like top 10 doubles in the world. And uh, we nearly made it to the Masters twice. And uh, we just failed very closely. And then Nikki decided that I was going to go and play with Boris. And I always said, like, I'll just, you know, he's a captain and he decides what he has to do. And Nikki sat down with me. Nikki sat down with Boris and just uh, made very clear what he expects of us. And uh, and then we just performed. We didn't have to sit down because we knew what we wanted to do. After losing singles, you don't have to sit down and say, listen, you know what, now we have to go the same way and whatever. <laughs> it's just like, if we want to win a medal, we have to play the best tennis together. That was very simple, and uh, we did. The, I watched the last few minutes of your of your title winning match last night, and uh, when you both take part in the final rally, your return, Boris's volley, and then you he throws his racket away, and you fall into each other's arms. What are your recollections of that moment of the, how you felt? 
no no re- no recollections except seeing the pictures I just we were both like extremely happy I mean we knew we did something great and winning the first gold medal in tennis for Germany uh, as two as a German doubles team and uh, and just knowing that we we reached the goal we we were aiming for and that uh, made us both very happy did you talk about it afterwards have you ever have you ever had a drink a dinner and, and reminisced I, I tried uh for the 25th anniversary i tried and i said to him let's uh, do it at wimbledon or even for the 20th but uh he never came back to me so it's still outstanding but uh he's he's got my number and uh, i've tried a couple of times so um maybe we'll manage for the 30th anniversary he's in form and terror boris if he's trying to get hold of him that's what i've learned this week from the gossip columns um oh. did you see the photo <laughs> I did see the photo, yeah. I like Boris, but I don't need to see him in swimwear. That's how mm. I feel about that. Um, it, I mean, there's there's a lot going on there with Michael Stieg, isn't there? I found that I found that really fascinating. I know he he doesn't love to talk about that relationship, does he? Uh, and I, I can understand that on one hand, and I know he sort of on one hand he's saying that it was. It was over overhyped by the media, made into something it was wasn't maybe in in his mind by the media. But equally, you can you can tell from what he's saying and the way he's saying it that it wasn't the sunniest of of relationships. No, no, um, no. there was there was definitely something there. They, they look, they just didn't click as they're not mates. They're not best mates. They never were. They never will be. Um, and they had to for this few weeks they had to just put that aside in order to and and what's interesting to me is that they did because I think there are some teams in this sort of situation that that just can't they cannot put their personal differences aside um and he, he alluded to the fact that there was a lot of media coverage that kind of hyped up any differences between them or differences of opinion and sometimes they added fuel to that themselves because I guess they just got asked a question couldn't help but answer it in a way that would would do that Um, but I just find it really fascinating that they when they got out on the court they were awesome they were just a fabulous doubles partnership and we were we were talking about it earlier in the week amongst ourselves about how Henman and Rosetsky were like that because they are very different and they would they didn't always get along you know they they're they're hugely different they're never going to be best mates at all but and also that occasionally they they wound each other up and yet on the doubles court together they were fantastic I only ever saw I think Henman and Rosetsky lose one match together Mm. um so yeah not that dissimilar and and Becker and, and Stick delivered it would be now like uh dan evans and kyle edmund teaming up for doubles gold <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but there would be no pressure to hug now no what with social distancing and everything but how, how would the racket tap work what would the aggro of this week <laughs> it's one of those where that like, you like the ideal vision of a doubles team is that they are friends and do get along and we kind of I think most people probably want a doubles team to be friendly and get along. But, you know, it was un- it was unrealistic to expect Becker and Stick to be great friends because they were also great rivals. And I think, of course, they can put their differences aside and play tennis together because it's their job. It's what they do. They're professionals. So 
it's one of those where it doesn't actually surprise me that they could play double so well, even though they didn't get on. But it's but it's like they just had to cross the barrier and believe that they could do it and actually give it a go. And um, some and, seriously. Good captaincy as well, absolutely, isn't it? Yeah. from Nicky Pilic. Yeah, and and an interesting the way the way Stick tells that of how he's tried to get them to talk together, you know, and sit down and celebrate it. Becca tells it the other way, and that on that evening, Stick took the first flight home, and he had arranged this big dinner with all the all the German athletes. I'm not not quite sure where the truth lies there, somewhere somewhere in the middle, perhaps they both tried. I uh, he's interesting is his um, accounts of staying in the village and again this is something I've I've asked everybody about that I've interviewed and I think the same for for you two because um, it's just such a fascinating Olympic specific um, dynamic to the whole thing and I think Barcelona is the one that everyone spoke most vividly about in terms of the village um, and most specifically the lack of air conditioning in that village, um, which I kind of, you know, on one hand you could view as all part of the the earthy uh, Olympic experience. But, it, I mean, it sounds like suboptimal conditions um, in which to be preparing for an elite sporting event. Um, but... Gigi Fernandez is somebody that I've spoken to um, in the last couple of days. As I said, she she went on to become a, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, but she won her first Olympic gold in the women's doubles in Barcelona alongside Mary Jo Fernandez. No relation. Um, she she was representing the United States um, at that Olympics at all Olympics and despite being a a native born Puerto Rican um, and she had a a lot of interesting things to say but she started off uh, by talking about her uh, her experience of the Olympic Village. I stayed in the Olympic Village for the beginning of the games and unfortunately the village had no air conditioning and we were we were it was right next to a highway and there were no blinds so you either open the windows so you would get air even though it was 85 degrees so that wasn't really helpful or um you know with no blinds and you that someone would come out at 5 30 in the morning so it was like you, i couldn't sleep for a long for many days so i ended up once i started competing then i moved out of the olympic village um, I was like totally dehydrated and just not in any shape to play. So I ended up moving out. Did, did spending a bit of time there sort of help you get that, the feel of being at an Olympics and being surrounded by athletes from all, yeah, others, you know, all other sports? Yeah, but just the opening ceremonies alone does that because so, the opening ceremonies are probably still one of the highlights of of my life that goes that ranks up there with delivering my kids <laughs> like that rush of adrenaline that um that you have when you walk to olympic stadium um it's really all you need to know that you're you're in a, in a special moment of your life tell me about that run to to your first gold in in 1992 in in barcelona on, on the clay i think yeah. uh, an incredibly hot tournament that that year yeah, it was hot. I mean, but I think what made it hotter is that we didn't have air conditioning, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> um, so that was kind of what was hard about it. But, um, but yeah, it was an amazing run. Mary Jo and I were not seated to win, um, but I was coming very confident at the time because I had just won the French and Wimbledon um, with my other partner. So I was pretty playing pretty good. I was pretty pretty confident going in that we had a pretty good shot. 
Um, and I think, you know, it's probably the funnest match of my life was that final because we were playing against the Spaniards, of course, in Spain, and there was 12,000 people in the stadium. And um, it was packed, you know, it was packed. They were all rooting for them, but it didn't matter. Just the atmosphere was electric. So, so yeah, it was a very memorable, very memorable match. And I still remember a funny story about that. I was, uh, Mary Jo and I were like cruising. We're up 6-2-3-1, and I was serving 30-15 just you know, a few points away from winning the whole thing between my first and my second serves, these two people walk onto the court, like on, on this, on the back to, to take their seats. And they were sitting in the front row. So I had to pause between my first and my second serves as they walked on the court. And I was fuming. As you can imagine, I'm like, what are these people doing? So of course I proceed to double fault and I go up to Mary Jo and I say, Mary Jo, what are those people doing? She goes, Gigi, calm down. It's the king and the queen. <laughs> Spain. <laughs> so the king, the, the king and the queen had showed up. You know, they were showing up during the gold medal matches of the Spaniards, and the Spaniards would elevate their games. And sure enough, they did, and they won the next five, six games. Actually, we're down two love in the third um, before we were able to turn that turn the momentum back around in our favor and ended up winning. But, but yeah, it was a very memorable, fun match to remember. Was it always a given that you would play with with Mary Jo, or was there some discussion about that who uh, you would play with? Yeah, there was discussions. Um, I think in the end, they kind of let me decide. And I, I, you know, I remember the choices were like singles players, like because they at the time you, there was like I think three singles players and then a doubles player, and I was picked as a doubles player. And then so I had to pick one of the three singles players. Um, so I think Mary Jo was the more logical choice because she had the highest ranking, and I thought our games would complement. Um, I knew she wouldn't go. I knew I didn't think she would have a run in the singles. So, like, I think Jennifer Capriati was another option, but she was young, and I knew she would do well in the singles. So I didn't want. They were trying to win two medals, right? We're trying to win singles and doubles if possible. So I felt like we'd have a better chance with Mary Jo. Um, you you aren't credited with being the first Puerto Rican to win an Olympic <laughs> gold medal. How no, I, how do you feel about I, no. that? Not credited according to who? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, going going on the the fanfare of four years ago, which I'm sure you were very very aware of. How how did you yeah. how did you feel during during all of that? Well, I was very proud that Monica won a gold medal. I I was very happy that a Puerto Rican stood on the podium and the national the our in Kenya played. But there's no question that I am the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. I am Puerto Rican. I'm a Puerto Rican as they come. I'm more Puerto Rican than Monica, if we want to be real honest. I mean, she left the island when she was two, and has been living in the United States ever since. I grew up in Puerto Rico till I was uh, 18, and. Um, you know, I don't know how you compare who's more Puerto Rican. It's like, obviously, it's a very uh, controversial subject, you know, because there's a lot of Puerto Ricans that don't live in the island. And there's a lot of Puerto Ricans that are of Puerto Rican descent, kind of like Jennifer Lopez, who is Puerto Rican, but never lived there. So being Puerto Rican is kind of strange, right? Um, but I mean, I, I was born and raised there. I developed my tennis there. I didn't leave there until I went to college. I just wanted for the U.S. So, I mean, so so the, I think the correct way to say it is like Monica Puig is the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal representing Puerto Rico. And I'm the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. Did, did it, did I, I understand that the reason not to represent Puerto Rico is because there, there was nobody that could have partnered you at the time. Was that correct? Yeah. Was that, how did that feel? Not, not being able to, to represent Puerto Rico, having the decision taken away oh. from you? Yeah, it was very, I mean, it was very, um, 
well thought out and contemplated. And I mean, I spent months and months and months making the decision. And it was a really, it's a very hard decision to make because I did feel so Puerto Rican, you know, and I had played, I had represented Puerto Rico in the 84 Olympics. Um, I did not play in Seoul in 88. I didn't, I didn't um, get selected to play Seoul. There was no, there was no Puerto Rico was here. The other thing that was happening is that Puerto Rico is not a sovereign nation for sports in tennis in the late eighties, early nineties, meaning we did not have a fake up team. So to be able to play in the Olympics, you have to be an independent nation with, you know, a fed cup uh, team, which we did not have. The first year we had a fed cup was 92. So, um, so yeah, so there was no, there's really no option. (laughs) And I don't even know that I would have qualified for singles. I don't know that my ranking was high enough to get in for singles. So it, in the end, it was really the only decision. Like as, as a competitor, as an athlete, you know, or as a, a high achieving athlete, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are happy just going to the Olympics. But if you can go to the Olympics and have the opportunity to win a medal, you're, you're going to take that opportunity you know, a high level successful athlete is going to take that opportunity every time. And anybody that says that the contrary is, is not a high level athlete. <laughs> you know what I mean? Was there any sort of emotional conflict for you when you were on the podium, not hearing the, the Puerto Rican Absolutely. Mm. I mean, I, you know, it's like I have, I have both passions because all Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Um, you know, I had a, I had a Puerto Rican flag that I pulled out. So I had the Puerto Rican flag and the American flag. Um, you know, and I think it's fairly unique in this. Well, you guys have some of that because you guys have, you know, Irish and Scottish. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and you all, yeah. So you can kind of understand that kind of, uh, confusion of what you are. Um, and you can be more than one thing. Correct. Just, just not yeah. at the Olympics. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I still feel like I'm a Puerto Rican representing the United States. I always felt that, and, you know, and, and the funny thing I was playing with Mary Jo who, was born in the Dominican Republic to Spanish Cuban parents, right? So, yet we're both, and I'm Puerto Rican to Cuban, uh, Spanish Puerto Rican parents. So we're both Latin, Hispanic, representing the United States. So, it's the world is a melting pot, especially more so now, right? Uh, absolutely. I um I read a lot about sort of your childhood and so on, what you had to to sacrifice and and risk to become a tennis player. Did did winning gold at at the Olympics? Did it did that feel like a kind of a validation of of all of that and all of those decisions? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's funny because like when I was growing up, it it was not a goal of mine because it was not an option. So I think winning Grand Slams was more of a validation of like that it kind of all paid off. And and also this this decision to represent the United States has continued to haunt me over the last 25 years. So I still, you know, it's still very controversial in, in Puerto Rico and it just doesn't seem to end, especially after Monica won the gold medal. Um, I mean, it, it was really hard like, a couple of years ago after she won the gold medal because everybody was like, well, if she did it, you could have done it. And I was like, well, but I didn't play singles. So, uh, you know, I just, it's like the story that never ends, you know. And now, and then I'm sure I'll come back again when she goes to defend. And That's it's really tough. Yeah, it's very, very complicated. 
Did, did, does it is it something that that you feel like uh, is more of an issue when you're when you're in Puerto Rico? Um, no, I, th- I think it's more of an issue when um, you know, like when the Olymp- when when the Olympics were happening, and mm. um, and people still talk about it. I mean, if I go on social media, sometimes I go through phases of being on social media and not being on social media because people get so they're so uh, vindictive, you know, and so. It's like harassment on social media. Like, I mean, I'll just write a post, like a random post about my kids or whatever. And then somebody will comment. Yeah, but Monica was the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. <laughs> like completely unrelated. This is three years later. And it's like, oh, my God, people just will not let it go. Did, did, so. does, that, does that prevent you from just enjoying and appreciating being a, an Olympic champion? Uh, no, no, I don't think it goes to that extent. Because, um, I mean, I do appreciate the fact that that I am an Olympic, two-time Olympic gold medalist, and um, and I think in general people respect that and um, and know that it was, you know, a good accomplishment, especially to defend, because not all the people have defended in tennis. So, so do you think I'm the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, a, good. Good answer. You, good answer. Well, you're a you're a Puerto Rican, and you uh, you won a gold right. medal. So thank you. Those are the facts, right. right? Those are those are her parting words to me. As I was just uh, just thanking her and hanging up the phone, she she interjected and stopped me and, and said, "So do you think, as you just heard, that do you think I'm the first Puerto Rican to win a to win a gold medal?" I and yes. Of course I do. As I said there, she is Puerto Rican and she won a gold medal. But it does um, highlight a, a slightly a, a, a deficiency, I suppose. And as much as there is beauty that we're, we're documenting on, on these relived shows about representing your country, um, that is, it's not, it's not the same for everyone. It's not. And, and the ability to do that isn't the same for everyone. There are... There are costs to that to that beauty, I think, and and it. I was I, we we had read some um, about Gigi Fernandez feeling uncomfortable with the narrative surrounding Monica Pui four years ago. As much as she was delighted to, to see her win that gold, I think she felt like she was being written out of history somewhat. And we'd we'd read about that, but I I was still quite taken aback um, by the emotion in her voice and and not quite bitterness but something verging verging on that and and I you know I can't I you know I can't deny her that I I understand why she feels it especially if she's receiving completely unsolicited abuse online for it um and uh yeah that really really hit me that one really hit Mm. me well I mean those parting words when she turned that round on you and asked you whether you thought she she was the first Puerto Rican Puerto Rican to win a gold medal I mean my heart broke for her really you know that she's carried this around with her for decades and she probably always will because there'll never be an answer to this there'll never be a a right everybody let's agree now that Gigi Fernandez is the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal that is not going to happen and even if it's even if it's true and i and i totally see where she's coming from but the common view is it's monica puig and 
and it must really, really hurt. It would be, it would, I would be devastated if I were in her shoes. I must say, hearing her speak like that actually made me change my mind about how I felt about it. I quite naively, I think, entered listening to that interview thinking that, you know, Monica Puig is the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. And just hearing her talk about it with the emotion and how much it kind of still plays a part in her life made me think that actually it's a far more complex issue than that. Yes, she wasn't representing Puerto Rico in those games, but identity, as, as you said to her, is is so much more complex than that. And that's that's kind of a, I suppose, is a privilege that I have that I don't really think about identity in those complex terms because mine is quite straightforward. But for a lot of people, that is something they really grapple with. And I think reading some quotes from Martina Navratilova kind of crystallized it as well, where she said, to succeed, you have to defy odds. And especially if you come from a country which hasn't maybe had a lot of sporting success, like Puerto Rico, you are blazing a new trail. And that can't be underestimated, kind of the emotion she was feeling and what she had to go through just to be at the Olympics. Of course, she's going to feel Puerto Rican, even though she's representing the USA. It's a, it's a far more... Yeah, it's just a far more complex issue than I had realised, and and to hear her talk about it so mm. so profoundly and emotionally, and just really really interesting. Yeah, and it it does maybe show up a bit of a, a chink in the system about team sports in the Olympics or or individual sports where there is a, an enclave of it, a subset of the sport where you combine as a as a team because obviously had she had she qualified for singles she, she would have represented Puerto Rico the reason mm. she she didn't is because there wasn't anyone to partner with and and that I, I mean figure skating is the sport that shows this this weird um anomaly up um most most starkly I think because you have you have the two individual events and then you have your ice dance and and pairs figure skating where you have um, couples competing and I mean it, it, in most of the pairs competing in the pairs event someone at least one team member will have switched nationality in order in order to compete and yes there is a process you have to go to and you do have to be resident in that country for a certain amount of time in in order to represent them as something but the fact is everybody everybody knows that 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 switch is happening for for administrative reasons the gold medalist actually in the i'm going off on an olympic tangent here it was it was oh another olympic tangent you knew what you were getting yourself in for when you when you both signed up for this um at the at the last winter olympics in pyeongchang the pairs gold medal in the figure skating was won by a couple representing germany aliona savchenko and bruno masso absolutely wonderful routine an incredibly dramatic event go and watch it on youtube if you get the chance it was it was breathtaking um but aliona savchenko had previously competed with um a german called robin sholkovy um and she's originally russian and she switched her nationality to german or certainly her um she she elected to compete for germany in order to partner with Robin Sholkovy and then Robin Sholkovy retired and she's a Russian Russian woman representing Germany but she'd already kind of picked her lane and then <laughs> she searches for a new partner she ends up with a Frenchman called Bruno Masso 
And then he has to switch to Germany in order to compete with her. So actually, they won this gold medal for Germany. And look, they're both, they're, they both live there. They, they, you know, they, it, it's not just something written on a piece of paper. I'm not questioning their commitment to representing Germany. But the fact is, it's a Russian and a French Frenchman representing German due to, Germany due to a, a kind of a, a quirk in the in the administrative system. And, and I don't have a solution to it, but that doesn't feel quite right. Um, and somewhere. Somewhere along the line, I think that relates a little bit to Gigi Fernandez. <laughs> it's nearly as good as the and if, uh, Northern Lights. If not, Lights. I hope you enjoyed the story. <laughs> Brilliant story. Um, no, it's, it's all right. We're uh, one hour forty minutes in. People who are still listening are enjoying it. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I hope she, I hope she takes pleasure and happiness when she looks at those medals no matter what, because, well, we'll hear from her a little more in the next one, you know, because she did it again. But, um, you know, it's it's, a, it's an astonishing achieve, achievement, really, um, to win two of them. Yeah, only uh, she and Mary Jo and, and the Williams sisters, of course, have, uh, have won two, two doubles gold medalists. So I think that rounds off our first two Olympic note. David David has something. Only that... It's int- I find it interesting that that with Jennifer Capriati, who who was trying to break through on the Grand Slam level for years, and she would always run into Gabriella Sabatini, Steffi Graf, Monica Seles, whoever it would be, and and you know these players were around in the Olympics during these events, and she faced Graf in the final, and and she beat her, and that's that's her one kind of she didn't win. Uh, a grand slam until until the Australian Open years, and and she won the French eventually, of course. But as a teenager, that's where she did it. And I was watching some of the footage from that, and and actually, that suddenly looked like quite a small event, really, mm-hmm. on that court. And uh, um, you know, suddenly you've got Bud Collins on the court interviewing her, and uh, as as he tended to do. But it was still very special. I remember being really shocked by that because Steffi Graf was just either her or Monica Sanders won everything. And I just think, again, it shows what the Olympics can do. Mm. And she was she was a 16-year-old champion that had, that had already been around a couple of years. She, she was, you know, sort of old news by that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was a, a, a notable Olympics, I think, for, for many, many reasons. Um, and very contrasting, I think, to, to what we're going to be reliving on the next episode which is the Atlanta Olympics in in 1996 and the Sydney Olympics of 2000 when's that episode coming out I think the plan is Saturday 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 by which time Fulham will be in the playoff finals safely Matt's wearing his shirt but doesn't is is reluctant to say anything because <laughs> he doesn't want to jinx but I've already done it Matt it- so it's pretty much the only time I'm superstitious surrounding Fulham. And I wore my shirt on Monday and it worked, so I'm wearing it again. And actually, shout out to, to Mark Forbes, the Southampton kit man, who's a tennis podcast fan and listener who got this shirt for me and has some signatures on it of our, of our relegation season. So. <laughs> <laughs> Has it got Mitro's signature on there? Yeah, I think so. See, it's the only one you need, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. a- Any Scott Parker? No, of course not. No. 
They don't no. want it. Doesn't want it. Um, uh, David, you enjoying me putting you through Olympics Relived? Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> um, well, that's our first one done and dusted. We'll be back next time with 96 and 2000. See you then. 